Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Ruler Conversations is brought to you by GCN+. We're getting right into the heart of classic season now, and I've cancelled all weekend plans until the end of April, when I anticipate again cancelling my weekend plans through May for the Giro d'Italia. We all know that the classics are unmissable races, and you can guarantee you won't miss a moment of these incredible races with GCN+. You can watch all the major races for both men and women, live and uninterrupted, with GCN Plus's ad-free coverage. And for those days when you just can't get out of what's been planned, you can catch up at a time that suits you with a full replay or GCN Plus's selection of highlights packages. There's expert commentary, and then GCN Plus's panel of knowledgeable ex-pros will analyse the action and explain the tactics. You can also get all the pre-race information you need with full previews, maps, profiles and start lists on the GCN app. With GCN Plus, the coverage continues all through the road and MTB seasons and beyond to the cyclocross and track seasons, and you'll have access to a huge collection of exclusive cycling films. There are over 150 to choose from, covering all aspects of the sport, with more added every week. A GCN Plus subscription costs as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, and all our listeners based in the UK and US, can save 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Head to gcn.eu slash ruler15 to subscribe. That's gcn.eu slash ruler15. I'm Edward Pickering. I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. We're going to be talking about Paris-Roubaix today. I'm going to talk to Ruler staffers James Start and Rachel Jarry, who are on the ground in France. But first, I'm going to catch up with GCN Plus presenter Dan Lloyd to see what his big takeaways were from the weekend's racing. The women's race gave us suspense until the very end. A large early break got a lead of five minutes, and the favourites made heavy weather of chasing them down. Though the gap came down below 10 seconds in the final kilometres of the race, nobody would or could make the final effort to close the gap, and EF Tibco's Alison Jackson won the small group sprint in the Roubaix Velodrome. In the men's race, the favourites forced themselves to the front very early, with Wout van Aert attacking with over 100 kilometres to go, along with teammate Christophe Laporte and Mathieu van der Poel. A few more joined through and immediately after the Arambo Forest, until there was an elite selection. 
The erosive effect of mechanicals and the cobbles whittled the group down to seven, and the decisive action occurred through the Carrefour de Labre sector, where first John Dagenkolb, the 2015 winner, was in- inadvertently brought down by the Alpecin duo Vanderpol and Jasper Philipson. Then Van Aert attacked, taking only Vanderpol with him. Van Aert heartbreakingly suffered a puncture before the sector was even over, leaving Vanderpol to solo to victory. And then Jasper Philipson outsprinted Van Aert for second place. So, Dan, two very contrasting races at the weekend. They were. And the women's race was contrasting to the two previous editions where we'd seen an individual rider go up the road very early a couple of years ago, fairly early last year. And this year we had the bizarre situation where 18 riders from 18 different teams weren't just allowed up the road, but almost a six-minute gap. And because we don't have the live coverage from kilometre zero in the women's, it takes you a bit of time to get your head around how that might have come about, why they were let up the road, and in some ways we'll never know. But they got the six minutes, and I felt like for a lot of the rides in that breakaway and a lot of the teams, it was a great situation. But for a few key teams, and one rider in particular, Lotta Kopecky, it was a horrible situation to be in. My biggest question, and I'm still asking myself this three days after the race, did the brakes stay away or did the peloton not catch them? You could debate this for a very long time, couldn't you? I think had we not had the crash where Elisa Longoborghini came off right at the front of the group of favourites, they probably would have been caught, but that's part and parcel of bike racing, but especially that race. It's six rider teams, not seven. You know, that makes a big difference as well to how much energy you're able to put into a chase. But I think either way, if I was the management of SD Works, going into it with a red-hot favourite, it's almost like their tactics should be more simple than anybody else's in the race, that you've got this Lotta Kopecky who's on fantastic form, best classics rider of this year and arguably last year as well, especially on these races, that it's very simple. You make sure that she's in with a shout of taking the win when it comes to the crucial points in the last 50, 40 or 30 kilometres and then she can get on with it and show her form. And the fact that she won the group sprint behind despite having her own bad luck and hitting the deck in that crash, I think says all you need to know. She was more than capable of winning. It's just that she wasn't given the opportunity to do so. So there's that old famous old rule or law in cycling called um, Chapat's Law, which is named after an old French TV commentator. It was a bit of pseudoscience which said that a peloton can take back a minute per 10 kilometres. Obviously, those numbers are all kind of maybe different these days but the thing is that in a flat stage of a big race like the women's tour de france or the women's tour you have a whole team at your disposal to chase down that break so you can see that if they have a minute then you can take x number of kilometers approximately to chase them down but paris is not like that is it there's so much erosion of the bunch that by the time teams realize that they really need to get a crack on with chasing They've got no domestiques left. Yeah, and I think that was the unique part about the race on Saturday as well, wasn't it? That often we don't see breakaways in women's cycling get a huge time gap or even be that big in the first place, 18 riders. I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. I think the general level is on the rise, but it's still not the same as the men's side of the sport where there's been so much more money in it that people from a very early age can afford to focus on being a professional cyclist knowing that if they're good enough they're going to be able to make a career of it. In the women's peloton that will change in years to come but I think that might be one of the reasons why they weren't afforded a big time gap in the breakaway because there might not be the strength and depth in an individual team to bring it back. And it is a reduced size of team compared to the men's side of the sport in the Grand Tours and in the one-day classics. And so that was why it's so interesting to see this big group 
being allowed off the leash to the extent that they were because you don't normally see that in the women's peloton. And I don't really know the reasons why. I mean, I guess there might have been a standoff behind because you know the big three teams, let's say, with DSM, Pfeiffer, Georgie, Trek, Segafredo with Balsamo, Longa, Borghini, etc. And then SD Works with Lotta Kopecky. They all had somebody up the road in that breakaway. And so therefore, they all had a reason to say, well, we've got someone up there we don't need to chase. But that said, how confident were they in, in their riders up the road being able to finish it off and take the win there compared to the percentage chance they'd have of taking the win if it came back to the favourites group. So I'm sure there were some pretty long debriefs after that race. It struck me that by the time the race got to its final phase, maybe the last few sectors, maybe even you know the last 50k or so, the favourites group was just the favourites. And if there's anything I've learned in my time following cycling, it's that favourites hate chasing. Yeah, they never want to do more than the other favourite, do they? And they're trying to do less, in fact. And so that's why the cohesion always breaks down. And then the other thing you always have to remember is that you always think in the back of your head that they're going to be fresher than the rides that have been out there all day. But the rides that have been in the early breakaway, they haven't had to fight for position into every sector. They haven't made any big attacks because their aim is just to stay away for as long as possible. So it's much more of a metronomic, steady effort as opposed to the big sharp spikes of power that you would get in the main favourites group where you see attacks and huge accelerations etc and so by the time you get to something like the Carrefour de Labra it might be that there's just as much fatigue in the legs of the favourites as there is in the group that's still remaining out front and I think that is to a degree what we saw on, on Saturday's race is that there was that fatigue creeping in but then there was also that other dynamic where you could see that Trek Segafredo didn't want to go to the finish line with Lotte Kopecky, knowing what a punch he still got at the end of a hard race like that. So we saw Longo Borghini go on the attack after her teammate Lucinda Brandt. And by that point, the gap had gone up from nine seconds back up to 20. And as we now know, it was all over for the group of favourites. But uh, I mean, it made for an incredibly interesting race because I think for a long time, once it had gone down to two minutes, we were all there assuming that they would catch back up. And especially when it got down to under 10 10 seconds, and you could see on the helicopter shot just how small the distance was between the two groups. It looked inevitable that it would come back together. And you hadn't even started contemplating what might happen between the league group to fight it out for victory. But as it turned out, they stayed away, and and that was a fascinating watch as well. They did, and I I was convinced they were going to get caught at all those points, like when they really started chasing in earnest and the really heavy cobbled sectors hit, and they brought the gap down pretty quickly to two minutes. And also, it wasn't all sweetness and light in the front group. I felt that the front group, from my perspective, didn't seem to be working as efficiently as they needed to to stay away from the palace and obviously they knew more than I did about the situation but I thought they needed to keep common cause a bit longer than they actually did. I felt exactly the same thing I was almost getting frustrated with certain rides within that front group I mean you could look at Femke Marcus and think well I understand why she's not quite as committed as the other rides in the group because she's got the big race favourite behind she's got a really good excuse to sit on For everybody else, pretty much, it was a case of this could be our only ever opportunity to be in the top 10 of Paris-Roubaix. And I think that's what we saw with Alison Jackson. Not only was she driving it on the front and doing an enormous amount of work, when she wasn't, she was really trying to encourage everybody else and probably say to them, look, this is an amazing opportunity for a big result, even if it's not on the podium. When's your next chance to get a top five in a race this big? And so, yeah, I, I was surprised that they didn't really get it together consistently. There were certain periods where the speed all came out of it. It looked like there was no motivation, certainly no cohesion. 
But then they managed to get it together just at the right time. You know, as it came down to nine seconds, all of a sudden, it felt as though they all thought, actually, do you know what? We might have a chance here. Let's go for it. And as it turned out, they were right to do so. And on the winner, Ali Jackson, you can't argue the fact that she seemed to be the galvanising force in the group. She was also attacking it from time to time. But in the end, possibly the most visible rider in that group and also the one who won at the end. And those, those two facts don't always come together, do they? No, you'll see the outcome of a lot of races and you'll look at the winner and think, they were, well, they were fortunate. You know, they, Maybe they, they boxed clever and rode intelligently, but maybe they took advantage of other people. But with Alison Jackson, like you said, she put everything into it, mentally and physically. And so to still have the power to come round everybody at the end and take the win, I mean, what I loved most about her victory was that she set her stall out in interviews that morning and said, I'm going to try my absolute hardest to get into the early breakaway and just see how far through this race I can get because I do not want to take my chances against the big favourites that will remain in the group behind. So we knew what she was going to do because she told us. Presumably the other teams had heard that as well. And so to do that and then carry it off, I think makes it even more special. It was quite a different race on the Sunday, both in process and in outcome. So what are your main takeaways from the men's race? My first takeaway is that it could be many, many years before we get a group going up the road in the first hour of Paris-Roubaix. I think so many teams and riders now want to get ahead of the game, anticipate, as we keep saying at the moment, because they know that when the big favourites light it up, there's every chance that they're going to get dropped. I think slightly less so in Paris-Roubaix because, you know, Mass Pedersen is more than capable of staying on the wheel for the most part of Van Aert and Van der Poel because it's flat. My second takeaway is that that element of surprise that Jumbo Visma had on uh, Avalea Walur, one sector before the Arenberg Forest, will not be there next year. I mean, I thought actually looking back, it was a genius move because they created a separation. Their two leaders that made it into that group weren't going to have the same proposition of danger going into the Arenberg Forest because it was such a small group. And we saw what happened behind, how dangerous it can be, how many of the favourites could be wiped out if one person has a puncture and therefore a crash. But that won't be there next year. Everyone will be thinking, who's going to light it up ahead of the Arenberg Forest to get ahead of the game? So you'll have an even bigger fight earlier on in the race. And it's the way that most races seem to be going at the moment, trying to get ahead of the game, have the element of surprise, go in places where over the last two or three decades, people wouldn't have even attempted to go because it was too far from the finish. So I think that's going to be really interesting in 12 months' time, watching how that plays out. On the subject of Jumbo Visma, it kind of brought home to me or reminded me that Roubaix is a really cruel race because I felt that they've come in for a little bit of criticism this spring, even though they've had a they've had a wonderful spring really compared to most teams. They won a lot of races, but came up short in the Tour of Flanders, and then again this time I th- I think they did everything right, and the race just turned against them. Laporte's mechanical completely changed the dynamic and composition of the leading group. And then at the crux, the absolute crux of the race, Van Aert had a puncture. I think, yeah, I would be more critical of them at the Tour of Flanders, where I didn't feel like they played their numbers as well as they could have done, than I would be at Roubaix. Because especially when you think about Van Baal, he won the race 12 months previous. He had some bad luck that saw him chasing back on. He would have been a big part of the plan in that sector before the Arenberg Forest to be in that group, to probably drive it on, maybe so that even Van Aert himself didn't have to do the work he did there. 
but he wasn't able to be there because of bad luck and then he crashed in the Arenberg Forest and you're right the same thing with Christophe Laporte they went from a situation where they had a group of what six or seven riders the only team with two riders within it two very strong riders at that so they could afford to think and about playing a numbers game later in the race. You know, if everyone worked together, if Underpool was prepared to work with them, that once we got deeper into the finale, they had Laporte and Van Aert, and Van der Poel only had himself. As things turned out, that punctured through the Arenberg for Laporte and the change that was slow enough that meant a number of riders came past him and he wasn't able to get back on. All of a sudden, it turned things on their heads because we had three from Alps and de Kerning and only Wout Van Aert from Jumbo Visma. And at that point, it's a very, very different race. The rest is history, of course, and Alpes and de Koenig rode an incredible race. But it, it could have been so different, but you could say that about every edition of that race. It's just so hectic. You do get bad luck. I think to a degree, you, you sort of make your own luck in terms of bike handling and crashes, etc. Sometimes there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. But what I'm trying to say is that if you put another rider on the same lines as a van der Poel, they're probably not going to be able to stay upright. He's got that cyclocross and mountain bike experience, which I think really reaps rewards in a, in a race like Roubaix where you can take different lines. And he was just a lot more confident going through some of the corners and, and taking the apex of corners on the dirt, knowing he was going to be able to jump back up onto the cobblestones, etc. You kind of still had your heart in your mouth, but not as much as it had been another rider that doesn't have that same sort of experience in bike handling. Van der Poel and Alperson, especially once that lead group had coalesced, uh, they did everything right. And if you're going to get two riders in a break on a flat race like Paris, I guess the best classics rider in the world and you know Jasper Philipson, who's one of the two or three best sprints in the world, that would be your choice of personnel, wouldn't it? It would be. And for that reason, I, I was quite surprised that Van Aert wasn't prepared to work with Van der Poel when he made his attacks and Van Aert was the only person able to go with him. I'm thinking particularly after Mons on Pavel when... Van der Poel went on one of the only serious climbs in the latter part of Paris-Roubaix. You would have thought that Van Aert would have been thinking to himself, well, I'm one against three beforehand and now I'm one against one. I'll take my chances. I beat him at the sprint finish of E3. I've beaten him before in sprint finishes one-on-one. But he didn't. He sat up and maybe he knew that Van der Poel would be selfish, that he wouldn't work for Jasper Philipsen because he wants to win Roubaix for the first time, even though Philipsen is the fastest rider in that group on paper. Maybe he was gambling on that. I'm not sure. But I just found that interesting because generally in the past, when those two have got away, they are both willing to work fairly equally together and then fight it out the finish line. But on Sunday, it just felt like Van Aert had a different game plan, that he was leaving it all for one attack later on, hoping he could go solo rather than go mano a mano against his arch nemesis. As for the rest, I mean, that leading group of seven defined the race. I mean, there was the three we just talked about, Van Aert, Van der Poel, and Philipson, but the best of the rest were also there, which is Matt Pedersen, Stefan Kung, John Dagenkob and Philippe Organa. All four of those riders rode extraordinarily well, I thought. Obviously, Dagenkob suffered just bad circumstances. You can call it bad luck or just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's just the way Paris-Roubaix sometimes goes. But all those four riders, I still felt I wasn't sure about how any of them were ever going to win from that group on that day. Really, the only situation might have been if Jasper Philipson started attacking, one or two had gone with him and Van der Poel was behind saying, well, it's up to you, Wout. If you want to chase it down and, and try and win this race still, then I'm going to sit on your wheel and you do that. And maybe if they'd looked at each other and refused to cooperate, then we might have seen a group sail off into the distance. But it's happening less and less, isn't it? When you start looking down the list of winners of the major races this year, 
last year as well, maybe even the year before that. More often than not, it is the big favourites that are finishing things off. And I don't really know exactly when that change happened. But historically, Roubaix has been a race that's opened itself up to very strong riders who don't win prolifically, but are able to head up the road and finish it off that day. Van Baal last year to a degree. I mean, he's, he's a quality, quality rider, but that was his sixth win as a pro rider. Same with Van Summeren, same with Matt Heyman. They don't win often, but that is a race where they can get up the road and do something and have done something. But there was not a moment in my mind, really, where I contemplated one of those other riders being able to beat both Van Aert and Van der Poel on Sunday. And, and that proved to be really they were the two strongest rides in the race and actually it was interesting listening to Luke Rowe and Geraint Thomas on their podcast this week that in speaking to Ganna after the race he'd said to Luke that he felt really really good that he felt like he positioned himself well in the last few seconds of the race he was handling his bike as best as he could but when Van Aert went and when Van der Poel followed him on the Carrefour de Lard, that they were at a different level. He had no chance of going with them and so from that point of view it was always inevitable that once they went and persevered with their attack that everybody else was either going to be fighting for third or for second. And Van der Poel's now had probably as good a spring as anybody in the whole history of the sport. You know, he's first, second and first in the first three monuments of the year. And he's got brilliant form. His confidence is sky high. And it's only a week ago we are all speculating about Tade Pogacar's potential to win all five monuments. And suddenly Van der Poel is up to three and people are asking what's possible for him in these races so what's your opinion on that I think he'll really really struggle to win a tour of Lombardy I know he's been top 10 there before but it was in the Covid year and a lot of the riders that might normally focus on that race or compete there at the end of the year were probably focusing more on preparing themselves for one of the grand tours that was coming up so when you look down the list of riders that were in that top 10 and just outside of it it's not the same quality of rider that you'd normally get up there in Lombardy at the end of the year. Well, I was surprised at the time to see how far he got up the Sulmano climb, which is long and incredibly steep because he's a big guy. You know, he must be around about 80 kilos, not by normal standards, but within the sport of cycling, when you're looking at climbers, they're all sub 70 kilograms, apart from Wout van Aert. And so I think, yeah, it, it would be a struggle for him. I think particularly at the end of the season where fatigue of, of the legs and the mind starts to set in, how motivated is he ever going to be to go to Tour of Lombardy and really focus on it and try and tick that one off? I guess the answer might come if he ever wins a Liège. I think that would come first of the two. If he does tick that box, he might start to think, well, what have I got left to win in this sport? Especially if he's won the World Championships as well. He might want to tick that final box, but I find it hard to see him winning a Tour of Lombardy personally. It's interesting, actually, because his dad, who was a similar, although not as all-rounder talent as Mathieu, won Liège, Baston Liège, and also sprinted for the win and was narrowly defeated in the Tour of Lombardy. I guess he will be up against it for the reasons you said. And I also sense that Lombardia is steadily at the moment becoming less a kind of last man standing race. There's always been a question of motivation at the end of the season for riders and you tend to get a sparser field there than for the main events but at the same time a monument is a monument so I assume he will have his work cut out there but I'd be interested to see if he can compete in Liège-Baston-Liège in the future. Yeah again I have my doubts just because of where it lands because although he's now won Flanders twice and won Roubaix 
I think he'll still really want to win those races again next year. And when you're targeting those races, plus the preparation that comes beforehand, you might say in the pre-season, you know what, I think I'll go on and do Liège-Bastogne-Liège. I think when it actually comes to it and you've got the relief of finishing those races, wherever you've come, the prospect of then staying on it for another two weeks, you know, with your diet, with your sleep, not going out celebrating a win or wherever you came, I think that takes its toll. So it's whether or not really he can have the motivation to carry on for that two weeks and still also be in top four. It's not in his ability. It's more for me about how long he can keep his form for and how long he can keep his motivation for at that time of the season. Dan, it was an extraordinary weekend's racing. Thanks so much for your insight. Got one more catch-up to come in a couple of weeks after Amstel, Flesch and Liège. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Rouleur 118, the Classics issue. The Classics are the beating heart of world cycling. These grippy, tough, atmospheric races in the chilly north of a European spring are full of character and excitement. Yes, the Tour de France is colourful and glamorous, but the Classics are real life, a kitchen sink drama compared to the operatic grandeur of the Tour and Giro d'Italia. We're celebrating the classics in Rouleau 118. The magazine features an exclusive interview with Eritrean rider Binyam Germay. Germay is one of cycling's most prominent rising stars. He won Gent-Vevelgem and a stage in the Giro d'Italia last year, and he tells us he is aiming even higher this year. But results aside, as the most successful black African rider the sport has yet seen, Guillermet is smashing down barriers and paving the way for many more to follow. Also in Ruler 118, interviews with Movistar's new signing Leanne Lippert and Spanish classic stalwart Immanuel Erviti, who has ridden more editions of Paris-Roubaix and the Tour of Flanders than any other current pro. How do you win the Tour of Flanders? Seven different champions, including Lizzie Dignan, Tom Boonen and Johan Museo, tell us how they achieved victory in the Ronde. And we've taken a deep dive into Flemish cycling culture and visited the best cycling bars in Flanders. Rulo 118 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. I'm now joined by James Start and Rachel Jarry, who are lucky enough to be in France for Paris-Roubaix weekend. James was on a race moto, taking pictures and eating dust. Rachel was at the Roubaix Velodrome getting insight and colour from the two races. Between them, they put a brilliant mix of stories up on ruler.cc. So I've already talked tactics and strategy with Dan Lloyd, but what are your takeaways from the two races? What was it like out there during the women's race, James? The women's race is relatively new, only three years old now. And I love it. I'm really glad that it's not the same day because you can just focus on that race. It's tremendous racing. The crowds are not quite as intense, but I think I like that because you place the race more in the in the landscape and the countryside, in which I think is just is such a spectacular stage. And then it was just an amazing race, you know. And these were two very different races from a tactical point of view, and both were just stunning races. Rachel, you went to the start and the finish of the women's race. What were your impressions? Uh, I think at the start, like 
everyone was talking about SD Works and how they wanted to beat them. And there was this real sense of like, is this going to be the race where the narrative of the season changes and it, they're not going to be able to dominate? And at the finish, I think like throughout in the Velodrome, it was just complete shock from everyone at, at that finish. It was so close. The group that was chasing the breakaway came within about 10 seconds and everyone was watching it on the Briggs green, kind of not knowing what was going to happen. And then the final sprint was so dramatic as well with the crash on the penultimate lap of the Velodrome. It was probably one of the most exciting finishes I've ever watched. And I just was like, just couldn't believe it. The women's race really ticked my boxes. I mean, we, everyone's got their preferences in terms of what they want to see in a race and what they really like to see in bike races. But I love it when an underdog wins and I love it when there's suspense drawn out over a long period. And then you get the excitement of the final denouement. And for me, that suspense and the unpredictability of it just made me so excited at the end of it. That's one thing that makes Roubaix so great is the unpredictability and the, and the chance. And that was never more the case than, than with the women's race this year. It's really been interesting to see because this is like only three years old. This is like a comparative baby. And yet you sense it's growing every year. There's more and more interest in it. You see it's it's growing. It's, it's like from the first year on, it was a huge hit the first year. And every year it's just getting bigger. And they've done such a great job of making this the Roubaix weekend. It's like the ultimate response to oh, two weeks in Flanders. All of a sudden you get these two incredible days in Roubaix. It's a wonderful weekend of racing. And one of the things about cycling is by definition, it doesn't have a stadium. The fans are out on the roads. This is the one of the few days of the year where there is a stadium. And Rachel, the atmosphere in there must have been electric. Yeah, it was so exciting. And I, I spoke to the DS of EF Education, Tibco at the end, Tim Harris, who had obviously been in Alison Jackson's ear kind of telling her what to do. And he said he was saying to her, you've got to ride to get to the stadium, you get to the stadium and you remember it for the rest of your life, even if you don't win. You remember sprinting for the win in that stadium, regardless of where you finish. And it is so true. There's nothing else like that in the sport. It's like you're surrounded by these huge crowds and everyone's watching and it's like they've come from the dust and the dirt of Roubaix, like gladiators into this velodrome and it's so epic and the way they all collapse on the finish line afterwards, it's so dramatic. I think that's what makes it so special. It's just completely crazy. You're our official Gen Z correspondent, Rachel. It appears Alison Jackson, the winner, is prolific on TikTok. So help a couple of old guys out here. Um, TikTok. Well, she does like little dances that are just quite funny. Like she did one alongside like the sound of her disc brake. She kind of made her disc brake squeaky into like a little dance. And she does really funny little TikTok dances. And that's kind of what she's become famous for. And she was saying in the press conference afterwards, she got asked obviously straight away like what TikTok she was going to do to celebrate this win. And she was joking, saying she needed to do a few more push-ups until she could do uh, TikTok dances with her Roubaix cobblestone trophy. And yeah, she's a really funny character. I think that was part of what made her win so good is like she's really popular among riders, among fans. And it was, yeah, great for Canadian cycling as well because I don't think there's ever been a Canadian winner of Roubaix on the men's side either. So it was just a historic day and I loved watching her on the podium like cradling that cobblestone trophy and she was like belting out the national anthem. It was cool. She's hilarious. I mean, she is so funny and so exuberant in everything she does from that sprint to the way she picked up that cobblestone compared to the guy. I mean, the guy's podium was comparatively solemn in comparison. I mean, every step on that podium she did was an event. It was really, and her, and her press conference was so colorful. I mean, she, I overheard her saying, you know, when I was growing up on the farm, I had to pick up rocks out of the, out of the ground or something like that. And now I'm picking up this big rock. I mean, she just had these amazing stories. What are your other takeaways from the race, Rachel? I'd like to know why that break didn't come back. 
I think it didn't come back because it had all of the big teams represented in it. Apart, I think it was apart from Movistar and Jumbo Visma. They were the only two teams who didn't have a rider in that move of 18. So there was just not really much like impetus in the chase because everyone was like, well, you know, we're represented in there. But also credit to Alison Jackson. Like she is this funny character and she's so outgoing. But behind all of that is incredibly incredibly strong bike rider and she drove that brake on throughout the whole day and she was wanted to split it as well she said she wanted to split it on the cobble section so that a smaller group had more chance of staying away and she did get it down to like six riders at the end her and Marta Lack who was the rider from WNT they kind of completely drove the brake on and like if anyone had won from that group it would have felt slightly unfair because they really had done the lion's share of the work and Alison Jackson said that when that group got established, she knew she was the strongest rider in there and she knew that other riders were looking at her and were also aware of that, which is why it was really important for her to be the one driving it on because she knew that if she started skipping turns, everyone was going to start doing it. It was all about gambling. She said it was all like about taking the risk of saying, look, I'm going to do loads of work and if coming seventh in this group is still better than coming 40th and Kopecky winning another race. And what was the reaction like or the atmosphere with the favourites group, who you know, they weren't far behind, but they were far enough not to be sprinting for the win. I think it was a bit of frustration, but mostly a bit of surprise. I think that Kebeki said she thought that they were going to catch them. They could see them up the road. It was just a weird sense of like shock and just a bit like of a moment where no one really knew what to do in the end there. Kebeki was sort of standing around kind of waiting to be interviewed as if like... She was just not used to coming seventh. Nobody really knew what to do. And even I can admit it, like I was looking at my phone, trying to look at the riders who are in the break, look at their pro cycling stats, because I didn't recognise some of their, who they were. I think the rider in fifth rode for like a French continental team. She'd only raced twice this year and never raced out of France last year. I mean, these results were massive for these riders, but it was cool. I mean, it was fresh in the season, which is, I think, what was needed. Talk a bit about the men's race now. What was your day like there, James? Because that, that was a very different race. Very different. The crucial action happened suddenly a long way from the from the finish. And then the pattern of the race was very set after that. You knew from which group the winner was going to come. I've done 30 Paris-Roubaix. That is one of the most spectacular ones I've ever seen. I mean, to see so many big favourites going, what, 100k out, essentially? And then it was like a mano-mano for 100k against those guys. I mean, and, you know, and they were not pulling punches. It was really hard out riding. It was it was pure bike racing and it's at the highest level. And it's just a, one more race, one more monument this year that has just been exceptional. I mean, every monument this year so far has had an exceptional winner riding an exceptional ride. And it was once again the case. And Rachel, you were in the Forest of Arenberg as the race came through try and convey the atmosphere, the noise, the impression as it comes through. It's a bit of a weird place, the Arenberg, because there's no phone signal. It's like this black spot. Nobody knows what's going on in the race. So all you hear are like these rumours swirling around about like what might have happened, who's on the front. And it's so packed with fans. And there was guys dressed as priests. I think it was because it was Easter Sunday. That's kind of the link I made. But there were like guys with their shirts off, people screaming. There was Flanders flags. There was flags everywhere. The atmosphere is crazy. And it's so loud when the riders come through. But I think the best part about it isn't even when the riders 
riders come, but it's like this anticipation and it's like slowly you get the police come and they clear the cobbles for the race to come through and you hear the helicopter come by once. But even when it comes by the first time, that's still like 45 minutes till they get there. I think it's the helicopter showing like a taster on TV of what's to come. So everyone gets really excited and then it's still longer to wait. And because you can't sit, follow it, you don't know where the race is. You're just kind of relying on seeing the cars, seeing the motorbikes come through and the attention just builds and builds. And then the riders obviously will come through so split up and they're covered in wounds and it's so dramatic. It's like nothing else really, the Arenberg. It just feels like this place where like amazing but also awful things happen and it's mad. Could you even tell who was winning and who was losing at that point? Not really. I was kind of looked at the top five riders and I made note of who they were. But then I was also like, uh, I've got no idea how this race situation is established. So when I got back to the press room, I had to go back on the live stream and rewatch it. But I don't know. It felt really cool to like see them come through, not having known how they'd got there. It added a bit of intrigue and a bit of magic to it, which, yeah, it was a really good experience actually to watch it. You mentioned this thing that you hear the race radio, you're getting these snippets and I often say, you know, you have the three weeks of the Tour de France in six hours, six and a half hours of racing. And it is so intense. And I had that race radio with me the whole time. And yet I didn't know what was going to come in front of me when it happened. I mean, I heard her that Van Art crashed or had a mechanical going into the Ehrenbergs. And all of a sudden he's at the front. Same thing on the Carrefour Lab. The last thing I heard was Van Art attacked. And then I, the first rider comes into my screen is Vanderpool solo. I mean, it's just how chaotic it is. You're just constantly reacting. You don't quite know what it's going to give you at any moment. And that's what makes it so great. So we had the group of favourites and it kind of settled on seven extremely strong riders through a bit of erosion, a bit of attacking, a bit of circumstances and obviously luck. Kind of felt that the sting was taken out of the race. Suddenly it went from a quite tense situation where there were definitely favourites and people who wondered how they were going to win the race, but they were all together. And suddenly one crash and one puncture and the race was suddenly over. I felt the same. Like it was a bit of a disappointing ending. When it was just Van der Poel and Van Aert riding away, I felt like it was time for that big showdown between them, that big sprint finish in the velodrome. And when Van Aert had that puncture, it just felt like such an anticlimax to what had been one of the most exciting races of the season. It was a shame that that had to happen, really. And poor John Degenkov, I felt so bad for him when he had that crash and he was on such a good day. It was almost like vintage John Degenkov, like he's not ridden at Roubaix that well since he won it, really. Like, I think it was, what, like eight years ago now or something. So it was really disappointing for him. And I felt so sorry for him at the finish line. I don't know if you saw those photos of him lying on the ground in, in tears and Van der Poel and Philipson came to try and console him. And he was just like, not ready for that. But yeah, he... He dealt with it like a trooper, to be fair. He then came and did interviews and stuff. But yeah, that was a bit of a sad moment for me. To me, he looked one of the better riders in that group. So obviously Van der Poel and Van Aert were the two strongest. And Philipson looked really good as well. Although it took, you know, it took him a while to make the group in the first place. But of the rest, I'd say Degenkolb was kind of around Philipson behind Van der Poel. So yeah, it's a shame. But you know, I remember reading... Years and years and years ago, an uh, anecdote from Paul Kimmage's book where he was presented with a, a watch by his father. The watch had an engraving which said, just remember in cycling, there's more heartbreak than happiness. And this race seemed to sum that up. Every rider gets to the velodrome with a story and this race just seems to magnify the emotions and it seems to strip riders down to their very essence. This race, riders look 
spent when they get to the velodrome, don't they? They just look hollowed out. After all these years, I still get goosebumps every time those first riders come to the velodrome. I can only imagine what it's like. But that velodrome was so special. And Prairie Roubaix is just one of those races where every rider, it's so rare, but every rider wants to finish. Every rider wants to be in that velodrome. Even if they come outside of the time limit, they want to get there. And that's a really unique thing in bike racing at this level today. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a piece on the website, actually, that was called The Broken Hearts of Prairie Bay 2023. And it was all about the riders who'd suffered. And there's something just there's something so cruel about Roubaix, the way it's so intriguing and it draws riders in and people love it. But it's so harsh on the riders, on their bodies, on on their luck. And I just find it, yeah, it's such a, a weird paradox of a race that everyone loves so much, but it can be so mean to the riders who love it. It's a sad thing, I think. That's an interesting note on which to end. Rachel, James, thank you very much for your time. Next up, Amsoil Gold, Flesh Valone and Liège Baston Liège. You have been listening to Rulo Conversations. Rulo Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Rulo magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Rulo and on Instagram at Rulo magazine or visit our website at rulo.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. <laughs>